This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thinking about putting together this talk, I also thought this is a good time for us to reflect on where we are in this year. And March marks the kind of anniversary of the pandemic. And we all can probably think of a moment when we thought things were going to be different. Professionally, I thought that there were many moments where I couldn't probably relate to in a time where I thought that this is going to be quite different for, for me going forward this year. But personally, I think it was when my husband um, worked, shifted direct, uh, from working from home. And then my daughter, who's four, her preschool shut down. So she was home and we were left together to device how to entertain a four-year-old while working at home and for me to be coming to work. So I'm sure you can also all reflect on times where you knew where things were different. And with that, I think I would like to kind of go forward and 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 talk about what we have learned. And we have learned so much in this year. And, and my hope from this talk is for us to talk about our current epidemiology of COVID-19 globally, nationally, and what's happening locally in California. And describe several COVID-19 variants that seems to be the conversation that's going on right now in the media and um, certainly in our professional lives. Describe the burden of COVID-19 in the pediatric population. I'm a pediatrician by training, so my interest is in the pediatric population and some of the post-COVID manifestations that we have seen, um, such as something called MISC, which I'll go into a little bit later. And our current knowledge about vaccines and its implications in pediatrics, and if time allows, maybe talk about some of the COVID-19 safe activities for adolescent and youth. So going into the epidemiology, um, where we started and where we are is quite humbling. And you can see from this map that this virus took over very rapidly over a period of what seems like forever, but only a few months um, globally with 113 confirmed cases and 2.5 million deaths. Um, and what's been going on more recently is we have just come out from a surge and, and the orange here is all these different lines are different countries. Orange is unfortunately United States where we had the biggest peak so far um, and surge in, in December and January. Turkey had a blip in, in the December time, but they flattened out very quickly. And what's concerning right now is Brazil and their uptick um, in the past couple months where, where they've certainly seen a surge. And, and within the United States, you know, which states have been hit the hardest? Um, I think all of them. There isn't a state that hasn't been affected by this pandemic and, and had a large burden of this disease affect their communities. So really, it's the entire United States um, that has been affected. Certainly some states more than others, but, but really the entire country. When we look at California, we can see that we had a mini surge back in July, but then what we really got hit by is December and January, and mostly this was Southern California, um, that the cases were, were really high in Southern California. The, the dotted lines here are, are reflections of what our public health measures were in terms of restrictions, opening, and deferring decisions to the county in terms of closing and opening. So you can see like how it kind of affected versus our, our, our peak and, and our restrictive measures at some levels. 
And, and I would say this is a promising slide in some ways because um, overall, every county locally in the Bay Area is seeing a decrease in the total daily numbers, which is reassuring. It's nice. I hope we keep up this trend. And if you look at in terms of uh, nationally, what we are doing is we also are seeing a decline after our peak. And I particularly wanted to highlight our pediatric population in this um, group that uh, certainly they, there are lower numbers than some of the adults with the pediatric numbers here are in the dotted yellow line. And But they're not immune from it. They still get it when the rest of the country and rest of the adults are getting uh, COVID-19. Um, this is another way of looking at it. Uh, nationally, these are percentage of deaths. Um, in pediatric population, it's really not been the burden of disease, but certainly for our older population, the burden of disease and death is certainly high. In terms of percentage of cases, you can also see the pediatric population here between zero to four or five to 17 shares some proportion of the disease, but not that high. And within California, we saw that less than five, and this was most recently as of March 13th, 2.4% of the cases in California in less than five years of age were from, uh, with COVID-19, and then five to 17 was 10.5%. So um, not, not that high numbers. And then you might have heard in, in, in media or popular reports, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that has affected children after getting COVID, which happens temporarily related to after being exposed to COVID. Um, you can see the numbers for this MISC syndrome also um, were pretty high and we can see nationally, uh, almost all the states have been affected by it. Um, and, and it temporarily correlates to when your peak has for COVID-19 versus when the MISC, the MISC cases are in the solid blue line and in the background is the COVID-19 cases. It lags a little bit, but we certainly see that. Um, and we certainly saw that at, at our hospital in Oakland um, with after having the December, January surge, really end of January and February, we saw a lot of kids with, with MISC. So I wanted to reflect on what have we learned so far. Certainly there are things that we still don't know and scientists are, are trying to figure out many things about this virus. Um, we know that it is a RNA virus and it's important in its implications of it being an RNA virus later on when we talk about vaccines. So examples of other RNA viruses are influenza virus or the HIV virus. We know it was first identified in a seafood market in Wuhan, China. That's no, no news to anybody, but we are still trying to figure out the origins of the virus. We think it comes from bats, but scientists are still trying to figure out. And then we, we declared the pandemic back in March of 2020 and this kind of March 2021 marks an anniversary for that pandemic. We know at the end of 2020, this, this virus was able to reach all continents, including Antarctica. And then in terms of transmission, initially there was a lot of conversation about the mode of transmission of this virus, but now we largely know that it's close contact from person to person, mostly due to droplet respiratory uh, symptoms. And it's less common transmitted through contaminated surfaces or other things. And really um, big, the huge learning was, I think initially was the asymptomatic transmission that plays a role in the spread of this virus. We also know that there are some, in certain degrees, airborne spread, meaning that if you are in close contact, the, the virus can transmit through the air uh, very easily, but it's usually in a very close encounters when people are loudly talking or singing. 
which has direct implications on transmission of where we can do and what activities are safe and other things. So I wanted to highlight in terms of children in particular, transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in children. And we know now that kids are likely not driving the household uh, COVID-19 outbreaks. And there was a really nice study that looked at actually 57 studies that were published between December 2019 through August 2020, describing household transmission clusters in about 12 countries. And out of those, all those studies, only 4% of household clusters were caused by children. There still remains controversial given other findings and other studies that children have equivalent uh, nasopharyngeal viral loads, meaning that they are, have the same amount of virus in their nose as an adult does. So why would they be able to transmit that virus? But when we actually did a reanalysis of those studies and we looked at them closely, you actually find out that when you, when you lump together a two and a 17 year old, it's not the same. And when you when you break them down by different age groups, you do tend to find lesser viral load. Um, and why is that? Why do children less likely get COVID? We um, still are trying to figure that out. There is no definitive um, uh, no answer to this, but there are many proposed hypotheses. And one of the more recent ones that was published back in December of 2020 is that they, they looked at uh, several individuals who are affected by COVID-19 and not affected by COVID-19. And coronavirus belongs to a big family of other coronaviruses, which shares a similar structure. And especially the spike protein that we have heard often about, the spike protein is what allows um, us, the virus, to get into our cells. And what they found is that children had a especially high number of this S2 spike protein, which is very similar to the SARS-CoV uh, um, uh, virus. And, and maybe that's what allows them to confer a, a little bit of immunity to this virus or what we call neutralizing antibodies. Um, so that's one theory. And I think I like that one. That's a good one. Um, there are other ones in terms of um, the ACE receptor theory, where there's um, this is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The spike protein is what attaches to the receptor or the gate or the door, which is called the ACE2 receptor, which is what we need in order for the virus to get into our human cells. And, and as we age, we have increased number of these receptors on our cells, so increased number of doors to let the virus into our cells and make us sick. Children don't have that many ACE2 receptors, so perhaps that's why they don't get as sick or severely ill from COVID. Certainly kids have lesser comorbidities, obesity, um, high blood pressure, kidney disease, smoking. And then there's also a theory about less degree of viral exposure, perhaps. They're not at work. They're not essential workers. They're strictly at home, mostly during this pandemic. So perhaps that's why the burden of COVID-19 has been less on, on children. Um, so what did they get when they do have COVID-19? Um, and, and I would say, if you look on this side, mass majority of these children are getting mild to moderate uh, disease. While I have seen kids in the ICU with COVID-19, most of them have been teenagers and most of them have had other um, illnesses that they have had with them and, and COVID-19 posed an extra risk to them. So in terms of moderate disease also, these kids were not hospitalized, they were mostly um, at home recovering from their illness. In terms of symptoms, a lot of them, 50% of them in this particular study had fever. They had um, redness in their throat. They had cough. They had elevated heart rates. They had signs of lung infection and they had nasal symptoms. So not very uncommon for any other respiratory or cold virus, especially in kids that we see. 
what has been surprising in some degree is that the degree of, of non-lung um, findings that we see in COVID-19 um, with adults and in kids. So this is from an adult study where they looked at all these other affected organs that were um, there from COVID-19. Patients had neurological findings, they certainly had skin findings, and they had other organs that were involved. And we have seen that in, in kids as well. We have seen certain degree of neurological findings for sure, and then some degree of, of GI findings or abdominal findings as well. So I wanted to touch base very briefly on this MISC phenomena that we see that's particular in kids. Um, back at last year in April, there were reports coming out of UK and Italy that there are severe complications in children that were hospitalized with heart condition or cardiogenic shock. And this is similar to what we have seen and known previously about something called Kawasaki disease, which affects your heart vessels because you have such a massive amount of inflammation in your body. Um, and what, what we realized so far and what we have seen is that kids who have been exposed to the SARS-CoV virus, eventually they'll have this two-week period of time where their immune system will get hyper-revved up and they will present with then signs of fever, very high fever. They'll have inflammation and by inflammation on physical exam, we can tell by really red eyes or dry cracked lips. Um, they'll have heart dysfunction, and they'll present universally almost always with abdominal pain, where they have, um, have had many kids who were presented to outside hospital because of they thought they had a, a appendicitis and ultimately end, end up having this MISC. What I can say is that the treatment for most children has been effective. All of them, at least the ones that we have treated, and I would say about 20 to 25 at Children's Hospital Oakland have recovered well with no um, sequela or no findings that would last them hopefully in their life. So the response to therapy has been good. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about COVID-19 variants because that's sort of been the talk of the town, I feel. Um, Dr. Fauci, who needs no introduction, I hope, um, said, you still have a fixed immunogen and a virus that's changing. Sooner or later, you're going to find a mutant that evades that. So it, it is no surprise to anyone among the scientific community that the RNA virus is going to replicate. It's going to mutate and the mutations are going to accumulate over time. And over that time, the circulation of the same mutations is going to create variants. It's in the very nature of RNA viruses to mutate. They mutate more frequently than DNA viruses. So if you remember, the influenza virus that I mentioned is also an RNA virus, mutates and we get a, a yearly vaccine for, for the influenza virus. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is interesting because it actually mutates slower than other RNA viruses, much slower than influenza and, and HIV virus. So mutations that happen in the spike protein, which you remember I told you was the, the attach point to the ACE receptor and how the virus gets hold into our cell. Mutation in that spike protein is, is of interest to us because when you have mutations in that spike protein, it has implications on viral replication. It, it may have implications on evading immunity and effects on vaccines that we have right now. So these are the names, um, there are kind of obtuse variant names uh, that we have of interest, the B117, B1351, and P1 um, that the CDC has mentioned is, is of interest to us. And there have been certainly reportings in the United States of these variants. 
I won't go too much into detail on this slide, but you can see the scientists have a very fancy and intricate way of creating these phylogenetic trees um, by sampling and sequencing a viral genome in order to identify what mutations are, are being recorded more and more and what's gonna stick and what's gonna stay. And, and over time, what has emerged is this lineage of B117 that initially emerged in Britain, and they discovered that it was 50% more infectious and has been discovered now in 70 countries and, and 33 states. I promise there's good news at the end of this. Um, the B1351 emerged in South Africa in December, and, and the theory is that it actually re reduces the effectiveness of some of the vaccines. And similarly, the P1 was emerging in, in Brazil in late 2020 and also has similar mutations. It has been no surprise that mutations exist and they're going to happen. Um, we have ha had a more robust change in our, in, within the United States to be able to focus more on the sequencing and monitoring. Um, essentially, the idea is if the, there's more virus in the community, the more chance the virus has to mutate. So how do we scale that back? How do we counterbalance that? And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about COVID-19 vaccines. So right now, there are about 200 vaccine candidates for COVID-19 being developed. 52 of them are in human trials, and several others are in phase one, phase two, and entering phase three in the coming months. That is amazing. Um, it has probably not happened in recent scientific history to have this number of vaccines being in development. Um, and, and I wanted to pause and think about what, what are the main approaches to making a vaccine. And, and I promise it's not going to be too intensive into immunology, but just to kind of give you an idea or a flavor of, of how people think about making vaccines. So you can use a whole virus or bacterium, or you can use parts of the virus that trigger the immune system to making it, or you can just use the genetic material for the virus. And when you think about designing a vaccine, you can think about an inactivated virus, which is very similar to what we have been doing and children um, get inactivated viruses vaccines all the time. There's also a live attenuated vaccine, which is similar to the measles vaccine or the chickenpox vaccine. And, and the interest has been recently in the viral vector vaccine, which uses a sort of non-transmissible virus and introduces the genetic material using that, that virus into the body and that DNA material would then create a protein to which your body will create the antibodies and then give you immunity. The other approach is to use just the subunit, so basically parts of the vaccine. And then this one is the, the brand new one, which we talk about the mRNA vaccine or the genetic approach uh, nucleic uh, acid vaccine. So I'll spend a little bit more time on the subunit approach and the uh, nucleic acid vaccine. Um, when you think about that, DNA and RNA are basically instructions or roadmaps for our cells to make proteins. In our cells, the DNA first turned into messenger RNA or mRNA, which is then used to make a specific proteins. And that's essentially what the overarching theme of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine is that we are using that technology to tell our body to make certain proteins in order for which then the body is ready, our immune system is ready to fight that protein whenever we see um, the actual COVID-19 uh, vaccine. The viral vector vaccine is the AstraZeneca that you might have heard recently or the Janssen vaccine. And then the subunit approach is the Novavax and the GSK Sanofi. I'm not gonna focus too much on these ones. These ones are the ones that are approved in the United States right now. 
Um, without going into too much gory details about each of these vaccines, um, I think um, it's it's an important takeaway. This is from Monica Gandhi, who's a, a infectious disease professor um, at, at UCSF, and and she's been quite instrumental in in uh, spreading the hopeful word about vaccines. Um, and, and I believe her, and I think it's good that if you look at the Moderna vaccine, um, try not to focus on too much here, but really look at this column in protection from hospitalization from COVID-19, 100%. That's amazing. I feel like if you're able to make the SARS-CoV-2 virus into a virus that was pre-pandemic, we were, we were all walking around with colds and runny noses and sending our kids with, with a little bit of snot, and not worrying that they're going to be in the hospital or not worrying that the grandparents are going to be in the hospital. That's great. Um, that's what we want. I'd take that. Um, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has been getting a little bit of flack because it's not as effective. The one thing about Johnson and Johnson vaccine is that it's been studied actually in out of United States, in Latin America, in South Africa, where if you remember the South Africa, 96% of the circulating strain is the B31, which is um, feared to not be as effective, the vaccine is not as effective, but it's still 100% effective in, in preventing severe disease. So the other question that often comes up is can vaccines decrease transmission? What, sure it decreases my chances of getting severe disease, but how will we go back to being normal? How will we go back to um, not having to think about going wearing a mask before going to the grocery store? And this kind of gives us a little bit of insight on that. The early data is suggesting that it also reduces asymptomatic transmission. It all, the vaccines are able to, tr to reduce the asymptomatic transmission. So right now I feel like we are at this cusp of like vaccines versus variants. Who's gonna win? What's gonna happen? Um, and I think overall there's good news. The Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, the data is promising regarding presence of neutralizing antibodies against variants from those vaccines. Um, of course, there needs to be continuing monitoring and surveillance of these variants. Um, and the good thing about the mRNA vaccine, which is the Moderna and the Pfizer, is that you can easily create boosters um, in future. So, um, and they're already working on that. Um, in, in, in kind of short summary, I want to say that RNA viruses mutate. We know that. The more the transmission leads to more opportunity for the virus to mutate. Neutralizing antibody titers from vaccines is actually really reassuring. And then we can always think about booster shots in future for mRNA vaccines. But until then, I think it's still important to, to adhere or to think about our non-pharmaceutical interventions, which have been really effective in curtailing the, the, the rapid transmission of this virus and the, the peaks that we have seen by masking, by adequate ventilation and distancing. And, and really in this, this manner, what we can think about is a little bit of a tiered approach, um, where if you're outside and you have adequate and plenty of ventilation and you are not really around anybody, it's okay not to have a mask. However, if you are close to other people, even if you're vaccinated, you should still be masking, and especially if you're indoors. So I wanted to, to take away this, this 
idea as as more and more of us in the community are getting vaccinated and there is hope um cdc recently put out these guidelines as well and and dr monica gandhi and some of the other uh, pro, uh, uh providers at ucsf had already kind of been talking about it but it's reassuring that that cdc kind of gave the backing as well so if you're vaccinated and your friend is vaccinated, feel free to mingle with each other without restrictions. You can have a glass of wine at home, no problem. If you are vaccinated, but your friends and family are not vaccinated, this oftentimes comes up in a question um, that uh, my grandparents are vaccinated, can they visit their grandkids? And in that setting, because the risk of the recipient who's not vaccinated is rather low to get severe disease, it's okay. Um, so it, it, in a scenario where the risk is, you, tolerance is, is not really acceptable and you're vaccinated and your friends are not vaccinated, you keep your masks, but there's very small chance and the data is reassuring that you're not gonna be able to transmit even if you have asymptomatic infection to your unvaccinated friends. And of course, if you're not vaccinated and your friends are not vaccinated, you, you adhere to all your usual restrictions. And I want to end here with with the last few slides about the ripple effect of COVID-19. Um, I think COVID-19, uh, for me, I've seen the illness, I've seen kids having COVID, I've seen the post-COVID manifestations, but there has been so much um, aftermath and after effects of COVID that we have to only just begin to probably think about and, and kind of really deal with what, what we have in front of us. And I wanted to focus on perhaps one aspect of that is, is schools. Um, there has been a lot of conversation about this in, in recent media, but I would say that most of my colleagues have been talking about this for quite some time. Um, it's a complex issue. It doesn't just involve kids. It involves teachers. It involves the schools. It involves the 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 mechanics of how we're able to provide the schools with things that they need in order to provide in safe and effective measures for everyone that's involved in that machinery. What I wanted to share with you is that um, a, a few slides that that hope will kind of connect with, with the audience. Um, this is uh, from uh, Dr. Emily Oster. She's a, a professor economist at uh, Brown University and has done quite, a, quite some work uh, with COVID-19. She looked at uh, Zern, which is a homeschool tool that existed even pre-pandemic in terms of these badges earned by students, which is kind of marked their academic performance um, in, in math or you know a, a subject like that. And, and March is when things started to shut down. And you can see that all the kids were earning kind of badges. There was ups and downs there. But fo following that kind of similar curve, as COVID-19 hit, there was a marked decrease. But as they stratified that by high, middle, and low income, you can see that there's a very apparent dis distinct change in low income versus high income. But even the high income kids who probably had all the resources, they still saw a decrease in their relative uh, badges earned. So this is where we, we want to not make this a political issue, um, not make this a divisive issue, but really work together to, to think about how we can best come together for our kids. 
Um, I want to share with you two small studies that looked at uh, transmission in, in children in, in a school setting. And this is from rural Wisconsin, where they used um, masking, groups, um, distancing, and quarantine after exposures. During 13 weeks of in-person learning, there were seven out of almost 5,000 kids who were COVID exposed at school and none of the staff. And really, the, the question that comes out of reopening schools and everything else, to my mind, it's not so much the kids, it's the adults who are coming to the school. And is there, there's a highest risk of transmission from adult to adult at school, for example, sitting in a lunchroom, having lunch together, which hopefully is going to be limited because they're going to vaccinate. Um, and then compared with children who tested negative for the virus that causes COVID-19 versus children who test positive, they are more likely to have attended gatherings, weddings, parties, funerals versus attended an in-person school. So I want to end with the fact that teachers are our allies. Um, education about vaccines and its administration for teachers is instrumental. And we have to provide resources for schools for adequate hygiene and precaution measures. And what's good for our teachers, it's good for our kids and good for us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.